Why did the web developer send a few extra bucks to his hosting provider? Because he heard that he should always tip his server. Oh, come on, you know you come here for this every week. Holy crap, thanks for listening to Real Time Overview this week, everybody. I'm your host, Michael Feenan, and I hope that you're having a fantastic, awesome, great start to your Wednesday. Every week, we bring to you the best news in web development from all over the internet that we can find. Or at the very least, the best news from all over the internet that we see. That's the thing. This show is made up from the news that we find and come across as we're going through articles every week. If you guys have found something that you think would be really great for our listeners to hear about, whether that's something educational or informative, maybe it's just something cool that other people are doing, run by our website at drunkenux.com and let us know. There's a little contact form there. You can send us a link so we can check it out. You can also send it to us on Twitter or Facebook. We're at DrunkenUX. Let us know what you're reading and what you find exciting, and we'll see if it can make the show next week. This week, let's kick it off with the age-old debate over the importance of progressive enhancement. Chris Ashton has written a nice article over at Smashing Magazine that reviews his experience with using the web with JavaScript disabled. One of the big arguments against aggressively applying progressive enhancement techniques is that simply nobody uses the web without JavaScript anymore. That if they don't allow your JavaScript, they will be getting a suboptimal, possibly unusable experience across the whole ecosystem. And sure, I get it. But as Chris points out, it's not just about people that have JavaScript turned off. Recently, a lot of folks have thrown around the numbers that BuzzFeed produced, which concluded that 1% of their users didn't have JavaScript. And while that sounds small, it amounted to 13 million requests for them. Now, if I ask you if you're willing to discount 13 million interactions on your website, how would you answer? This argument isn't the same as trying to justify not supporting IE8, after all. As he goes on to explain, the web is hostile and unpredictable. You rely on any number of resources that could fail or block something. How prepared is your site for the next time a CDN goes down? I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here, because it is one damn deep hole. But Chris does an excellent job looking at a number of popular sites like Amazon and Facebook, seeing what works and what doesn't, and making suggestions about how you could deal with those kinds of issues. It's a tough world to navigate as websites become web apps, and when the demands of interfaces increasingly require the interactivity of JavaScript. This particular article is absolutely top-notch, and I'm starting it off as my must-read for the week. It's full of information and examples, and it's guaranteed to give you something to think about. Ravish Bala has put together some initial thoughts for you on Material Design 2.0 as Google I.O. gets underway. Material Design has become a backbone element of product design at Google with the pattern system extending to UI development all across the Android ecosystem and well beyond. In much of the same way that iOS influenced early mobile tools and design, which I assume everybody remembers JQ Touch, right? 
Material design is pushing ahead to influence how people think about mobile and touch interfaces today. The next release of material design isn't going to be a major overhaul of what they've established. Instead, Ravish looks at how it aims to refine the concepts that it established in the first version of the spec. Much remains to be seen, and we should expect to hear a lot more detail as we move through the next couple days at Google I.O. If you do mobile development, either on websites or for applications, it'll be worth keeping an ear to the ground for updates as we learn more about Material Design Version 2. Okay, by this point, most folks who focus on front-end development are spending their fair share of time learning the ins and outs of Flexbox and the power it brings for enhancing CSS layout. There are a lot of tools out there that can help you learn it, if you're interested, like uh, Flexbox Froggy. We'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out. Ethan Jarrell has written about one particular property at Hacker Noon in his article, The Power of FlexGrow. What he focuses on here is how you can use Flexbox CSS to improve how your layout adapts to the addition or subtraction of elements that share space within a row. The concept of FlexGrow creates a sort of Goldilocks effect, where it takes the best parts of fixed and proportional width declarations and combines them into an effect that's just right for adapting to change. If you've committed yourself to Flexbox, or even if you're still learning it, this article provides a good description of one particular use case along with the examples and explanations necessary to help understand it. So here's a fun little fight to start. And you can blame Scott Cole in his article 5 Genuine Reasons to Stop Using Social Share Buttons. Scott has put forth an argument for why you don't need to worry about incorporating social media sharing buttons into your layout, and I'm not going to say that I disagree with him. I don't want to take away all the mystery addressed by his post, but let's just say that you can make a very compelling case that people don't really use them, and that they add a lot of weight to a page, among many other things. So. For many folks, your share counts are already going to be fairly low. We're not all Smashing Magazine, for instance. So if you think taking up space within your layout is worth it, ask yourself the question of how you'll measure that to prove its value. I want to remind everyone that before we had social media and share buttons with these counters on them, we had another little numbered badge that we've since gotten rid of. The hit counter. There's something about that vanity metric that we ultimately always figure out isn't useful. And I think social media share buttons fall into that exact same category. People know how to copy and paste a link at this point in order to share it. So check out Scott's article. See if you can get a few more reasons to ditch them moving forward. If you hang around the internet long enough, we all eventually end up on Reddit at some point. Despite being 13 years old, it's managed to hang on to a layout that still very much resembles what it was when it first started. Go check out archive.org and punch up reddit.com. Go back to 2005, take a look at what it looked like then. It wasn't all that different from how it looked earlier this year. Now that's all changed as they started rolling out a new redesign to users last month. Rachel Kayser has put together a short piece at the next web that looks at how some of the site's larger communities are reacting to the update which only reinforces this often learned lesson that users hate lots of change happening all at once. That's not to say the redesign is actually bad, and I'll admit it, it doesn't bother me personally all that much. 
but there are always good lessons that we can find when large community sites like this undergo change. Are you a Reddit user? What do you think of the new layout? Maybe a bigger question, do you think this is a move to make the site a sweeter target for being bought by somebody? Drop by DrunkenUX.com. Let us know your thoughts on the redesign. Since we brought up Flexbox earlier, it seems only appropriate to point people to the Scrimble Learning Platform. The folks behind Scrimba are putting together a code learning platform that uses an interactive editing environment and screencast. So far, they have basic courses on the holy trinity of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, but also some more specific ones for subjects like Flexbox and D3JS. They've broken these up into fairly nice bite-sized segments that cover 20 or more lessons, in some cases, per course. What's even better is that these courses are all free right now. So if you're looking to hone any skills or, or learn something new, then this might be a great way for you to jump into them. It'll be well worth checking out and sharing with folks that you know, especially if you've paired this up with a platform like Gymnasium or, or Code Academy to make sure that you learn these things from different angles. Stop by Scrimba.com and check out what they have put together for you to learn. Well, folks, that's what we've got this week for you here on Real Time Overview. Once again, I'm Michael Feenan. You can follow me on Twitter at Feenan, F-I-E-N. E-N. Join us on Monday for an all-new episode of the Drunken UX Podcast. We'll be joined by strategy car host Elena Wines, where we'll be talking about web strategy in all of its forms. Well, maybe at least a few of them, at least as many as we can get squeezed into an hour show. Either way, check us out on Monday. We will be back, and then we'll have another episode of Real-Time Overview coming up next Wednesday. As always, I want to remind everybody to keep your personas close and what? Keep your users closer.